power on. The following is a presentation of the Sovereign Tech Podcast feed. Whoa, it is time for another journey into the void. Hold on, let me do that again. Woo! Yeah, there we go. <laughs> But it is time for another journey into the void where Sekmagora and Penguin of the Agora podcast and myself decide to just let it rip into the strange. Now, as you may have heard a few days ago when uh, I released for the first time uh, Into the Void episode three uh, into the Sovereign Technica feed, which... You know, again, that came episode three came out in August, and this one was recorded at the end of November 2022 that you are about to hear. But as I said during that, like, we don't really prepare for this, you know, like Sek might have something in mind that he wants to talk about, or maybe at the end of an episode, I'll have a cliffhanger or something. But what we're going to finally get into here, speaking of cliffhangers, is at the very least, like the day before we were about to record, or actually might've been the day of that we were going to record. I messaged sec and said, so what are we going to talk about <laughs> for, for episode four of into the void? And he's like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> and then he's like, okay, well we got to do the final payoff of the universe being tripartite. And that's exactly what we're going to get into here. So from the very first, from the very early episodes of my appearances, on the Agora podcast, which I think I still hold the record of being on it the most. If I don't, uh, if I no longer hold that, believe me, I will make that change. <laughs> I will hold second penguins feet to the fire and say, get me on baby. <laughs> anyway, cause you know, we've got plenty that we could always talk about and there's plenty of subjects. Um, you know, yes, kind of, I guess what you could, uh, call the star of the show is the conversation around the universe being uh, tripartite, but Sec brings in some things later on that are just little sticks of dynamite, as he often does. Uh, and if you're a Sovereign Tech patron, A, you got this episode early before it got released publicly. B, uh, you will know because Sec often asks questions for the Wednesday Q&As that we do for patrons only. Um, you'll know the kind of questions he asks and everybody always goes nuts for them. So he drops... He drops, uh, again, some little six of dynamite later on in this episode that, um, I, as you'll hear me say, I, I want to get far more well-versed in, uh, for example, the green man. And I mean, you've got to wait to hear about it. We're not talking about aliens or, well, maybe we're not, but anyway, <laughs> fascinating historical conversation. Um, Penguin certainly has a lot to say about it. So you're going to want to stick around for that. Um, and we do get into some, something that is actually very important to me to talk about. Uh, we got to like almost the two hour mark. And so I couldn't spend all the time I wanted to with it. And I got a lot of questions about this, um, into the sovereign technica email, which is Q 22 at nwo.red. And it has to do with um, a piece that I wrote for the Sovereign Technica newsletter in the spirituality section about the anti-economics of spirituality. Now, I actually uh, read that article on Sovereign Tech proper uh, not long ago, 
which is why so many people reacted to it, I think. Um, because, you know, I can't wait for the day when the Sovereign Technica newsletter has, you know, more followers than Sovereign Tech has listeners. It could be a little while before it gets to that point because Sovereign Tech, you know, we're still reaching out to the thousands and thousands with Sovereign Technica. Uh, but the newsletter itself, you know, I, I really like I can't wait for the day that that ends up happening. Um, so, you know, it's not a surprise that people didn't react until they heard it on the show. And I think a lot of people really confused what I said. And I make it a point to read directly from the article. And I'm going to, if I remember, I will link to it in the show notes here as well. You know, even it being outside of, uh, the newsletter. So you can just read it on its own. Okay. But at the end of it, I make it very clear that I am not saying that money doesn't have a place in the world we live in today. I am not saying that money cannot buy happiness. I am saying that it is limited in application. That's, that's my point. I think a lot of people, you know, and, and we'll get, again, at the end of this, we'll get into that more. And I want to talk about the universe being tripartite as well and, and have some uh, clarifications as we, as I do this, uh, this exclusive intro for the Sovereign Technica audience. But with the money thing, and, and I still might talk about it on, on a Sovereign Technica Prime episode, okay? But with the money thing, I think what ha- here's here's what I wanted to, in writing that piece on the anti-economics of spirituality, here were my goals. I wanted to show that spirituality, or I wanted to uh, highlight that spirituality is not about the prosperity gospel. It is not the secret, you know, Rhonda Burns bullshit about making a ton of money. It has nothing to do with that. Your spiritual practice is not about adding zeros after the one in your bank account. The amount of happiness. Now, key phrasing, the amount of happiness, not the lack. I'm saying the amount of happiness that can be achieved, you know, with money is limited in comparison to what you can do with spiritual practice. It's limited. I didn't say it's not possible. I didn't say it doesn't buy happiness. I said it's limited. Okay. And, you know, with that in mind, I wanted to, this is the third part. What I wanted to make clear was my recognition that money is a necessity today. Okay. Because what often happens is, you know, people, when you get a lot of, uh, 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 I guess people who, who you may want to call, or they might even call themselves gurus, which I certainly would not do. Okay. But when you get a lot of spiritual gurus, whatever stripe or cross they happen to bear, um, they will fall into generally one of those three camps where they will say that, oh yes, you know, believe in Christ or, you know, just think happy thoughts and you'll make a ton of money and you'll have prosperity. Okay. No, that's not true. <laughs> that's not how think of like Han Solo. That's not how the force works. <laughs> right. That's not how the force works. Okay. Or they fall into the opposite ex- of extreme where they're essentially saying, don't worry about money. Don't think about money, you know, live an impoverished life and all of this. And, you know, just, just, just like be like the desert fathers or, you know, some monastic order or something and, and all that, like people, a lot of gurus will fall into one of those, you know, one of those two extremes 
or ironically, they'll sit in the middle and they'll be like, yeah, you don't need money, but I do. So, you know, send it to me at whatever address.com or whatever, you know, crypto address that they happen to use. And since they're shysters anyway, they probably, they're probably not using Bitcoin, but anyway, so <laughs> I wrote this piece, the anti-economics of spirituality to make it abundant or to try and make it abundantly clear that the spirituality that I practice individually, that Kabbalah does not play in any of those realms that I just described. Okay. And it does not have those end results where it's give me money or eschew money or money is the purpose of all this. None of those things are true. Spirituality is something. And, you know, as you'll you know, experience as we go into this, uh, into the void. And believe me, even if you're not, if, if you're, you know, hardcore, uh, explicit atheist, you know, and you don't, and you think the soul and spirituality and all that jazz is nonsense. You are in for a trip because as I've said on sovereign technica, Patreon episodes, I don't need ancient texts or Kabbalah to, you know, explain, um, what I believe and, you know, or, or, or to get out there, what I want to espouse. I don't need that. I can just use modern research and that, and, and that's it. Okay. So my points stand outside of whether you, you know, want to have any kind of spiritual experience or spirituality in your own life. It doesn't matter like that. That's, that just doesn't have to be. And as you'll hear me say in this episode, you know, Kabbalah, in my opinion, and I don't think it's opinion, but Kabbalah is the high science. It is science itself. And it stands far above quantum physics, uh, you know, Newtonian physics, all of it. It stands above all of it. And that's why I can easily point to modern research and say the book of Zohar or other Kabbalistic texts. And they say the same thing. So my point can get proven like whatever you consider to be your, uh, you know, your axiomatic truth, whether that's, you know, scientific rigor or, or mo- should I say modern scientific rigor or pick your book or whatever, I can still make my point stand regardless of where you're coming from. But let's be clear when we're talking about spirituality and when we're talking about Kabbalah, this is something that begins and ends on the grandest scale on the cosmic level. In fact, we'll get into it. What even exists outside of the universe? Yes, we actually talk about that in this. Now, another point that I want to make clear here, as we discuss that very subject of what exists outside of the universe, there is a point where I describe the universe as God. Okay. Now I am, let me be abundantly clear. I am still, and always will be, as I've said for the past 10 years and even beyond that, an atheist. Why? Because an atheist, now we could get into the different types of atheists and there's certainly a great conversation to be had around that. Okay. But an atheist claims there is no God. And I am telling you there is no God. What I am saying is when I, when I say that the universe is God, I am saying that when, you know, certain texts and yeah, we'll just go with that certain texts, when they use the term God, that's what they mean. But there is something separate from God 
that is also discussed in a lot of ancient texts that, again, is something else that would be, you know, the infinite or the Ein Sof. We'll cover all of this, but I just want it, I just want it to be clear at the outset. No one here, or at least me, I, I, I'm not, <laughs> I am not speaking for Penguin and Sec when I say this. No one on Sovereign Technica, okay, <laughs> me, which is essentially me, is saying there is a God. There is no God. There is no Sky Daddy. There is, that just doesn't exist, okay? Um, something that I think is, is really apropos and that I've also talked about in the spirituality segment and have read, uh, those, that very segment in the ancient and the strange on, uh, on sovereign tech recently is in the last into the void in into the void. Number three sec makes a point that the only way you can know objective reality is through the perspective of something that exists outside of that reality. Sec is brilliant in bringing this point up. And I don't disagree with him at all. Uh, I, I think that's exactly what you need. And this gets into the conversation around axioms. There has to be something axiomatic. Now an axiom. And if you listen to into the void number three, you know, I get into a conversation around what an axiom is. I've also done a spirituality segment around what an axiom is. Okay. But I would go so far if I were to append anything to the definition of what an axiom is, it is something, it is a truth that, you know, can only be seen say from outside of the universe. Like, and, and if I were to append, I guess I'm not really appending to the word axiom I'm more appending to, uh, the, the term truth, but we don't need to confuse the matter. The point I'm making is that, as I've said, for me, what is axiomatic is the book of Zohar. Okay. Now, the book of Zohar is something that was written through, for lack of a better term, inspiration. And inspiration can mean a lot of different things, and I intend for it to mean a lot of different things. Inspiration from the Ein Sof. The Ein Sof, as we'll discuss, is something that exists outside of the universe. So, how do I know that there's an objective reality? Because I believe that there is something that has actually seen, uh, you know, the territory and not just the map to quote Alfred Korzybski, of course, you know, the map is not the territory. Well, the Ein Sof, you know, what that is, and we'll kind of get into that in this episode, uh, you know, certainly knows, knows the territory. So putting that out there, but once again, let me be abundantly clear here. Let, let me do a little, little, little George, uh, George Herbert Walker here, George Herbert Walker Bush. Read my lips. You can't do that over a microphone, but anyway, read my lips. There is no God. Okay. Got it. I'm an atheist, just like many of my listeners. Now, perhaps you've heard me espouse the phrase thou art God. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to be very brief in clarification on that. Cause that's kind of going to come up in this episode as well. And when I say thou art God, I am not saying that we are all connected, man. I've already, you know, gone over that kind of subject a million times. We, we are, but we're not all connected in that. Like we're still individuals. Okay. But we're not connected in the sense that, um, like your, you know, what makes you an individual is your desire. 
Okay, this gets into hedonism, right? That the purpose of life is to uh, is to seek experience pleasure. So what makes you an individual is your are your unique desires. Those desires are not uh, natively, inherently interconnected with others. That makes you an individual. Okay. What happens is, in my experience, is that when you have a lot of people that say, oh, we're all connected, man, uh, you end up with two things. You end up with people who think we are supposed to uh, come to, and, and this is more of an intellectual exercise, you end up with people who think you're supposed to get to some kind of what would be called, uh, was it Teilhard would call like the Omega point, right? And that like in their example, Christ would be the Omega point where we're all supposed to evolve into kind of one being. No, 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 nope, nope. <laughs> no, <laughs> not saying that at all. The other thing I'm not saying, I'm also, I want to be clear on when, you know, the, what connection we do have say that we're all made out of star stuff or that if the universe is God we exist within God, you know, this, this, this thing that we, this universe that we could call God, even though it's not a sky daddy, it's nothing like that. Okay. Um, we are, as you'll hear me describe, I describe us as the gut bacteria of the super organism that is the universe. Okay. Now gut bacteria operates on its own. It's not some kind of unified body. There's a unified effect based upon what the gut bacteria do, but you know, our understanding of gut bacteria is that it's incredibly individualistic. That's why we use a plural term for it. But anyway, if this is getting confusing, I apologize, but let us continue. Okay. The problem is that a lot of people who want to espouse the idea, you know, they take some kind of drugs or whatever, and they want to say, oh, we're all connected, uh, is like that we're all one. And it's usually some guy at a, at a rave or something who wants to, you know, like, it's his uh, spiritual bypass for getting in bed with some gal or other guy or Z. And that's bullshit. Okay. Like, even if I believe we were all connected, uh, no. <laughs> that doesn't give anyone the right to do anything to someone else because you all think you're one being. So that's another reason that actually I very, very uh, uh, stringently uh, spouse the, and defend the notion of the individual, even if we are organisms within a super organism. And in that sense, we're all connected, but we're not all connected. Our desires are completely separate from one another. And all you have to do is get into an argument with another individual. And you know that, that we're not all connected. So again, all of that is an oversimplification. Um, but, you know, this conversation around thou art God and what does that mean? Uh, I want to deep dive more on that. We did do a live Q&A, which I have to pick those up again uh, for the Sovereign Technica patrons. We did do a live Q&A, I want to say back in April of 2022, where it was a roundtable, you know, a lot of brilliant listeners. And we all and SEC was there as well. And we all kind of like, you know, went after that that conversation. That's something to be had. Uh, and it's something I need to have and I'll get into it. Maybe it'll be the next into the void. Who knows? Again, we don't plan these things out. Basically, we're just like, yeah, what do we want to talk about? All right, let's talk about that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and everybody just in their brilliance responds with what they've got. And it always, I think it always turns out to be radio gold as they would say. Um, and I think you're going to find the same with this one, with episode four of into the void. It is always such an honor and a pleasure to work with get behind the mics with sec and penguin, such brilliant guys. 
out there. Um, they're doing tremendous work with the Agora podcast. Um, and you know, I've been honored since day one to be invited onto their show. Uh, someone should, you should always feel honored when anyone else cares about what you have to say, let alone let you on their baby, you know, let you on their show, uh, to, to, to let that stuff out. And these guys have been, you know, I'm really, I'm really thankful and grateful to them because they have given really, they've given me a platform to let out my wilder ideas, much of which you're about to experience at, at a very, uh, uh, well, as I said earlier, on the grandest scale. So my thanks to them. And certainly there will be more into the voids in the future. Uh, and like I said, I got, I got to keep my record up of being, you know, the person who's, who's guested has been the guest, uh, the most on the Agora podcast. So we'll, we'll keep that record going. Um, but I will let this one ride out with the music and boy, open up with some kick-ass black Sabbath, baby. And, uh, <laughs> so I will see all of you woo, on the other side. The Agora podcast is covered by a Bipcot no gov license. Use and reuse is free and encouraged by anyone except governments or their agents. Find out more at bibcot.org. Welcome back to uh, the Agora Podcast presents Into the Void. We're introduced with the uh, sounds of uh, Black Sabbath, as usual. That's our special theme music. Um, I'm I'm thinking about recording an audio essay uh, coming up. Some extra bonus content it might be Patreon only. Maybe we can get some uh, some cat scratch fevers, some the nuge on there. Something something interesting, you know. But yeah, I like I like the um, it's copyrighted music, so I don't know. We'll we'll see what happens. So how's everybody doing today? I'm doing well, and we're welcoming back a friend of the show, Doctor Brian Sovereign, Savzu as he's known. Brian, welcome back, man. How's it going? It's a- doing well, guys. Great to be back. Uh, it's been a while since we've done an Into the Void, but uh, it's I our first always- void in quite a while. Yeah, but I know we always have cool stuff to talk about, so uh, I'm excited for it for sure. Yeah, right on. It's good to have you back. It has been a while. You've been busy. You've been doing all kinds of stuff. That's that's part of it. Yeah, that's a that's a big part. I mean, uh, with uh, my show Sovereign Tech, which of course is now rebranding to Sovereign Technica, we just uh, celebrated our 500th episode. I saw that. Good for over you. A, yeah, after over a decade of recording, um, and so that has uh, certainly kept me busy, uh, among other things. You know, I'm sure everybody kind of feels that these days, but uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's been, like I say, yeah, it it has been a while since we've done an Into the Void, but I always love these 
because we just let it out, you know, and we, and we just, whatever crazy things are going, you know, through our head, we just make it happen and, and, and say it. And I love it. <laughs> we can explain ourselves later, I guess. Yeah, fair enough. Oh, we did have you on for the food panel, though. That's why it felt like I we'd had you on semi-recently, but that was just for the food panel. That wasn't a Into the Void. That's right. Good point. Well, everybody yeah. should go check that out, too. To go back and listen to the food panel, because uh, everybody was on point with that uh, conversation. So, Yeah, I can. Uh, I, and, you know, as somebody who's been podcasting for a very long time, and I'm not just saying this because myself and my wife is on the show, or on that episode, but uh, that's probably one of the best podcasts I've ever heard. I'm not saying that I've recorded. I'm just saying that I've ever heard, like ever. So if people, if you haven't heard that one yet, if you haven't checked that out, get to it. Yeah, that was a really good episode. I went back and listened to it actually, and I was like, "Wow, this is uh, this is something pretty amazing." Actually, yeah. Um, so yeah, but thanks for coming on to that. That was uh, your input, input, and your <clears throat> and your wife's was. Uh, invaluable to that conversation so that was good honored um so the big payoff here at are Trump's. we gonna start uh, are we gonna start we're starting that? out no i'm not giving you any kind of sl- chance to slip away this time <laughs> we're going right for the jugular <laughs> so if you had um just a brief um to get everybody up to speed in case for some reason you haven't listen to an episode of into the void before which i highly recommend you do for since we started this and possibly even before we started calling it into the void brian uh keeps hinting at i believe his quote was uh reality or existence is tripartite and he keeps giving little hints about what he means and i think he's been if if I didn't know better, I, I would say that he's been building up to an answer throughout all of these episodes and laying foundational work. And if I know Brian, I would say that's probably the case. But um, I think he's been laying the foundations for what he wants his answer to be. And he thinks he's slick, but I caught it. So I'm calling him out right now. He asked, what, by, what do you mean by... Um, did you say reality or existence is tripartite? And I'll, uh, I'll let you build up to it. Yeah, sure. So <laughs> I don't know if I've laid enough foundation yet, but like I just said earlier, you know, on this show, we just kind of say it, you know, and 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 maybe we'll try and, and hammer things out a little bit, and, you know, and, and figure things out. But, um, you know, when you're, when you're talking about the very nature of existence, um, can you do that in an hour or even a two hour podcast? Like, can you really explain all of that? Of course not. Like that's not possible. You, you can't even really do it in a book. Um, you know, you need an entire series of books, maybe every book in the universe that could possibly exist to even begin to explain um, the universe. But I think you can get to the core of what comprises uh, existence as, as we know it. And saying that it is tripartite, is really just saying that it consists of three things, whatever those three things happen to be. Um, and as uh, we said, I think before before we went live here, you know, Sec was talking about, and this is something, this is maybe the most important foundational thing to lay out really, in my opinion, in any conversation you're having about anything. Uh, I mean, any subject you can imagine, you need 
to explain from the beginning. And I think it was the very first Into the Void that we did. We discussed the limitations of, well, particularly we were talking about the English language, but really the limitations of language itself. Uh, and you always have to lay that out because if people don't understand that there are things that language just cannot encapsulate and maybe never can encapsulate, um, then, you know, you're going to run into where, well, wait a minute, prove this, or wait a minute, what do you mean by that? Or, well, okay, but that's the definition of this. What's you know, it, like, I, I know that the classic, uh, line from, uh, from Socrates, or as a uh, Bill S. Preston Esquire would say, Socrates, um, you know, where he says that, that like, uh, what, what is it? Definitions is the beginning of wisdom, right? Or defining terms is the beginning of wisdom, something along those lines. Um, I think it goes much further than that. Like that, that, that's not the beginning of wisdom, like <laughs> paying attention to your feelings is the beginning of wisdom. Then, you know, maybe you can try and put those into terms and then you have to define those things. Uh, but that's just a failure of, you know, Greek thought regardless. Uh, so any terms that I really use when I am like breaking down the universe into or existence into three things, uh, any terms that I use, any three terms are going to be inefficient, uh, flawed. And well, I mean, it's bottom line, just, they're not going to be good enough. Now I will start off with saying part of the importance that I, that I say that it's tripartite in saying that it's specifically three is not because of the classic nonsense of that. Oh, everything comes in threes, right? Like, I mean, everybody hears that throughout their life. Um, or it's easy to fit things into three somehow. Um, uh, that's actually not my purpose in saying three. And of course I am also, this is not what I am describing is not necessarily something, you know, it's not like a theory that I came up with. Um, I generally like to pull from as ancient a source as possible. And then I like to use, you know, modern uh, research or, you know, the latest research or at least recent research that, you know, like walks the line with that ancient source. That's how I like to come to something that could be described a truth or something that is applicable. Um, because I think when we're talking about things so foundational to the human condition, like existence is, as otherwise there are no humans, um, it should be something that we've always felt, you know, there are like that, that there is at least some, there, there's some clues, you know, even in what past we can possibly know of, you know, and I say what we know of, not to say that there isn't even a further past beyond that, uh, so that's important to me. That's why I like to look at ancient sources and then look at modern research. And, you know, if modern research says, screw you to the ancient source, I mean, there's a couple of different options that can happen there. At least one of them being that the ancients were wrong or the other being that, you know, well, modern science or research just hasn't caught up to that yet. Um, and I found myself lately speaking of the importance of terms, and I'm going to get back to the tripartite thing in a second. I found myself recently using the term research a lot more than saying science, because science is a term that comes with a ton of baggage. Uh, and it also, I think, has, at least in the 20th and 21st century, even though this is not the, you know, if you talked about science in the 17th century and even going before then, it would have no problem with the occult and mysticism and all of this as to where today it seems to do so. Research, I think, can more broadly encapsulate a lot of, a lot of things beyond science. Um, 
and you can, you know, the nice thing about a term like research is you can put, you know, terms in front of it. You can put prefixes on it. It can be medical research, scientific research, whatever. It could even be occult research. But research, I think, gives you a broader scale. So I like to use the term modern research instead of saying modern science. Now, back to the importance of using different terms. So the reason I, I go with three and that I say tripartite, partly that is because it's what's described in ancient sources that I pull from, but also uh, I really want to, they're a, a popular aspect of a lot of the popular, use that term again, popular religions, uh, as well as concepts like, and, and I would say these are bullshit concepts, like morality. Uh, you know, and, and other varying things, it all comes down to usually some description of dualism or bicameral, like the idea there's this show. And, you know, if someone wants to like chime out and, and chew me out for, for saying this, that's fine. I don't care. But like, there's this, there's this really, really bad show called, uh, was it Westworld on HBO that, you know, I mean, it, it it's a flaming pile, but whatever. It is, it, it's been espousing for a while, this uh, concept called the bicameral mind. Now, I don't want to go into defining what the hell all that is and everything. But the point is, is that saying that existence is tripartite, the reason that I stick to that has nothing to do with it, you know, just being three. It has to do with saying that it is not dualism, nor is it bicameral. You know, it, it, it's getting away from that only two options, because in life, there, there's never only, you know, like two options. There's never only two ways. There's never a bad and a good. There's no such thing as bad and good. Uh, so getting away from the concept of two, you know, like, and you would look at a lot of Eastern religions where they would, you know, a lot of them would break things down into a dualism, you know, that there is like a yin and yang. There is a, um, you know, again, like there's an evil and a righteous, you know, and getting away from those concepts. So saying that existence itself is based upon three gets you out of all of that baggage, gets you away from all of those conversations and moves you beyond what I would argue are, you know, even though, like I said, I do like to pull from ancient sources, these are concepts that are incredibly antiquated. Uh, and we have to get out of the, I think, to get to any kind of truth as we're able to today in ways that we haven't been able to, at least in the past five, 6,000 years, uh, we really, we want to get away from, again, from that dualism. Uh, I, I think that that's, a, you know, get away from the either or. Uh, it's not either or, you know, it's, 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 and it's not even all or nothing. We could get into a big conversation around the concept of like nothingness, which is a massive conversation, but regardless, Getting away from the, you know, again, from just from two, we've that number. I'm not saying that number has to go away. That number is not a problem. It's just a number. But getting our minds thinking outside of that is really, really key. You know, even thinking outside of male, female, thinking outside of all of these things is really important to, in my opinion, getting to the heart of existence. So before I describe tripartite, do you guys have anything you like, like any critiques or anything you want to say to, to what I just laid out? Uh, two things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> of, all, of all things, two things, of course. <laughs> I have two things. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, as you were talking about the limitations of language and language being insufficient at describing 
let's say certain aspects of uh, existence or the human experience or any of these things, it makes me think that uh, there's potentially something missing or that we are unaware of. So if <laughs> hmm, language, it would seem that if there's more to existence than we can describe with language, then there must be something else that we can use to communicate these ideas. I, I've had experiences myself that I could not hope to put into words at all. Mm. So there must be something I, there doesn't, I don't think there's necessarily, this leads me to believe or uh, think about that. There's might be something missing beyond language that uh, maybe existed at one point and we lost, or um, it seems like, we, it seems like we are as humans are missing something. And I know, I don't know what that thing is. You mm -hmm. might say it's some sort of, you know, maybe it was reading minds or I don't, I don't know, but, um, um, or maybe you mentioned emotions. Maybe we're one at one time more attuned to our emotions and the emotions of others. Now, uh, I would disagree with you on the, the towel. Uh, I don't necessarily think it is solely limited to a dualism. Many people interpret the Tao that way, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, sure, I'd run with that. that. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think a lot of the um, we after the we as humans after the Greeks in the Western world tend to. Uh, think of things in that binary in the the the, the mind body duality or um, either or the Manichaean sort of good versus evil. Um, you know, uh, Nietzsche talks about this in the genealogy of morals. We tend to think of things as either God or the devil, or it's this or that. Right. And I think that is us as sort of modern humans transposing our current form of thinking about these things onto ancient humans who may or may not have really thought of things in such simple simplistic terms does that make sense like yes, um yes. that the greeks changed the way the almost the human brain thought about things um in 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 their philosophies and approaching uh and presenting dualism in such a way to where now most of the way that we think in the Western world is based on that. And so we, when we go back and look at history, prehistory, um, ancient research, as you put, uh, uh, ancient literature, we tend to put those things in this box that the Greeks have created in our own minds, if that makes sense. So I agree it's important to break free of this dualism. Um, and, it, and it, a lot of this comes from uh, comes from the Greeks, but there's certainly other thinkers as well. But um, we tend to uh, limit, I think, uh, ancient thinkers because we already think of things in this way. So then we uh, we sort of have to fit all of these things into a box. So it's like um, humans, I don't think thought for a long time ago did not think of things as totally good or totally evil. It was sort of circumstantial. A lot of 
a lot of their quote unquote gods were both in a lot right. of ways yes. uh, or neither or or a bit of you know it was complicated and humans are complicated and i don't think any that I, I don't think good and evil really was at least not on the forefront of their minds. They were sort of good in the, uh, there might've been preferable and non-preferable behaviors and, and, and individual acts, but uh, the idea of there being um, evil people or evil entities or, or good people or good entity, it just didn't exist for Correct. most of human history until very, until relatively rest, uh, recent in human history. Um, so I don't know, remember where I was going with that now, but I agree. I guess I'm saying I agree with your assessment that we need to move beyond dualism or Manichaean thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's part of my appeal to more ancient sources is that they do, cause I agree with your assessment, what you just said, sick, um, because it, it exists outside of that, uh, uh, you know, that categorization which is a powerful tool that really the Greeks seem to bring on, um, you know, and where they, they were like dividing in us versus them. Um, so that that's part of the reason I like to reach further back and the Greeks actually. So here, here's the, here's the uh, uh, paradoxical thing, but usually ironically, you know, people always have a hard time with paradoxes, but I don't think uh, historically. And when I say historically, I mean like ancient you know, historically, like our ancient, ancient ancestors, I don't think had any problem with paradoxes at all. They just treated them as existence. Uh, but when I say that the universe is tripartite, like at the same time, those three things all come together as one. They're really not separate things. They are things that have a dash, you know, in between each of them. It's really the Greeks that separated, you know, like, like these, these elements, shall we say of existence. Um, and I do think that while I'm a firm believer in the concept of emergent properties, meaning that the more things come together, the more elements you add in and, you know, it can become something, uh, greater or at least different and more than the sum of its parts. Uh, at the same time, I do think that existence continually, like it, 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 it sort of scale, like everything's a mirror of the other. And I'll get into more of what that means, but Zach, do you, do you have something you want to chime in? No, I'm just also pro transmutation, but yeah, uh, go ahead. I, yeah, I, there I we go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so the three things and, you know, I've actually, I'm kind of glad that we didn't get to this question until now because I've really wrestled with the terms. And again, all of them are going to be uh, flawed in varying ways, but the three terms that I've decided to run with are space, time, and thought. And so when the universe is tripartite, those are the three things. Now, those three things, again, really should just have dashes and they're not actually separated. Uh, and these three things make up, I would argue, the entire universe. And I would argue that modern research is also pointing very much at this. Um, now, it has, its, uh, it has its corollary in the human body in that the human body is made up of mind, body, spirit. Now, the Greeks are the ones that split up the brain and the body. Uh, now, there's an advantage to this that occurred where, you know, we were allowed to make tremendous, uh, you know, advancements in medicine, um, as well as in, you know, some aspects of philosophy, or at least we started a crucible of philosophy when we started separating, you know, the mind from the body. But 
ultimately these things are not separated and the spirit is also not a, I would argue, a separate thing. So you have mind, body, spirit, dashes in between all that. And then you have space, time, thought. And these things are, you know, mirrors of each other, you know, or they're different scales of each other, but it's the same exact thing. Um, in this case, more of the, you know, the, the corollary for each uh, body would obviously, you know, be correlative to space. Uh, mind, interestingly, would be correlative to time and or experience. Like time is, time is kind of an illusion, but it's ultimately, you know, experience within a space. And then, you know, the last part would be thought. And then for the human, it would actually be spirit. So as much as people would think that thought would actually be mind, I would say no. Uh, I, I think that that's, that, that's very different. Um, now, the start of all of this, like when I say that, okay, so this is, you know, I mean, space, time, and thought, I think people get more or less what that is. Mind, body, spirit, I don't think people really need a lot of definition on that. I do mean, you know, when I say mind, body, spirit, I do mean like, uh, you know, your your thinking process, like your the, the thinking, the conscious thinking process, not the unconscious. That's a separate conversation. So the thinking process, uh, you know, that, that you can experience. Okay. Like, you know, and, and the reason I'm, I'm being kind of vague on that is that I actually, I don't think that a lot of thinking actually happens in the brain. Uh, this is something where I think the Egyptians were right. More of it is, I mean, thinking occurs through neurons, but I think it's happening far more through the neurons of our heart than it is through the neurons of our brain. But that's, that is a whole other subject, you know, to really talk about. And I'm not like just pulling this stuff out of my ass either. Uh, <laughs> there, there is, there is research, you know, to back up just about anything that I'm saying, you can disagree with it, of course, but it's out there. Um, so body, of course, we mean the physical body, you know, that all these organs was, you know, these, these flesh sacks that all these organs exist within. Uh, so, you know, again, I think that's self-explanatory if we are defining terms and spirit is, that's a little harder, you know, to describe and really talk about, but it is that, you know, which, which animates one's existence. Um, and then, you know, again, breaking it, going, going to the larger scale of the universe, that being space, time, and thought, uh, is just that space is, you know, the physical things around you. Time is again, that, that, that experience and action that occurs, you know, within that space. Uh, of course the idea of like space and time being one thing, like that's not even controversial anymore. You know, it's the thought part, the last part of that, that is now, uh, I think is still controversial, but has been getting studied for, frankly, decades. Uh, and this goes well beyond quantum physics, but quantum physics is certainly, you know, a major part of it. The works of Fred Allen Hoyle, um, you know, and, and we, we could, uh, Charles Musset, I mean, they're, they're like, there's, there's, there's plenty of, of, you know, names that, that we could list off who are talking about that. Thought itself is an integral part of the universe. And now we get to the point, uh, and I mean, I've been very pleased, frankly, in the past couple of years, uh, and certainly we could use good news during that time frame. Uh, I've been very pleased that modern research has uh, is beginning to really accept the idea that the universe itself is a thinking being. Uh, like that the universe, as it exists in its entirety, with all the matter, everything that that makes it up, is itself a like it's it's an entity, and it has what equates to a brain. Um, 
I think popular popular mechanics, plenty of your you know your major pop sci you know outlets uh, were writing up about this, uh, which you know again pleased me to no end for for that to, to to essentially finally come out. And of course, you know when you have the universe as a gigantic brain, what is that thing doing? It is thinking. So that is that part is the thought. Uh, and this get this plays very much into the poetic language of like Carl Sagan you know, who would say we are all made of star stuff. Um, you know, we're all like, a, we're, we're, or we are a way of the universe exploring itself. Um, and I could get into things that I've talked about on my own show, uh, Sovereign Technica, where, you know, like the concept of that, that humans may be the immune system of the, of the universe. I mean, th these are really, really powerful ideas that certainly deserve more exploration before we want to say, Hey, that's a fact. Of course, what is, what even is a fact? Um, but this is so that that's my that's my starter on explaining what I mean when I say that the universe is tripartite space, time and thought. And that is reflected within the human body and really could even reflect further down than that. The more we explore about gut bacteria and whatever else, um, you know, in mind, body, spirit and so on. Questions or thoughts on any of this, guys? And you so can that, tell me I'm crazy. Go ahead. <laughs> no, this is not. I mean, I probably should have taken a few mushrooms before we started this, but yeah, um, me too. <laughs> um no i i like this uh this to me reminds me of a very old um trope uh as above so below um exactly yes it's yes. it's well it's three you know it's threes all the way down and the the macro is the same as the micro which is the same as the yes the, the universe is the same as us which is the same as the micro exactly um so I would only, okay, so my only, I think I need to think about the thought more so. I was going to ask you to parse out the thought aspect of existence, but I guess you sort of answered it in the sense that the existence itself is a thinking being is what you're going for. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's ahead. where, so, so, so that, uh, let me just try to repeat back to you what I think you're saying. So if thought is an aspect of existence itself, that would imply existence or the universe. And we can talk about if the universe is all of existence, but um, is itself an organism that is thinking? And okay, I guess my, is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, okay, I think so, that, that's fair. <clears throat> I guess my next question would have to be, what role does thought play on on the movement of the universe are we saying that the universe itself has like free will uh yeah. or uh, uh, yeah that's my question what what role i guess does thought play into existence and what how do we interact with that yeah, sure. So, uh, so there's two, two points I want to bring up with this, and I'm glad you asked this question, very insightful question, because it gets at part of the evidence for this thought. Um, one of my, one of my peeves, um, in science today are the concepts of dark matter and dark energy. Uh, and these are only, the, these are band-aids in science and there are plenty, uh, of the scientific people in the scientific establishment that readily recognize that dark energy and dark matter. No, like that, you know, th those don't exist, even though, I mean, it, 
it's used everywhere. It's talked about everywhere. And there's plenty of millions, if not billions of dollars spent on trying to prove its existence. Um, but no, this is very much a theory. This isn't even remotely close uh, to being proven. Um, you know, it, it's in the same, I mean, I, I guess I could say it'd be in the same ballpark or, or uh, situation, I should say. Same situation that like black holes and wormholes were in the 70s. You know, now eventually those did get proven to exist. Um, but I think with dark matter and dark energy, that's not going to end up happening. And what is actually occurring is that thought process because the universe is expanding. See, this is the problem. This is why scientists want to, or why they came up with, and again, they just, they, they pulled it out of thin air. Uh, no pun there, but they, they absolutely pulled this out of thin air to say, okay, wait a minute. So the universe should actually be contracting. Why isn't it? It must be because, and, and what is making up, you know, 96% of the universe that we're not seeing, it must be this dark matter and dark energy. And that's what's pushing things out because gravity, which is a thing, gravity should be bringing everything closer together. And, you know, there, there, there are plenty that, I mean, and there are, there are other, you know, scientific issues that based upon that, that really dark matter and dark energy are trying to solve. They even try to apply this to, uh, or scientists today will try to apply that this bandaid of these things to the uniform temperature of the universe, which should not be right. Because if you have a big bang, things should be uh, colder, the further out you go in the universe, but we know that that's not true. So why is that now? I mean, again, that that's, that's one of the very hard problems in physics. Uh, and it's been a hard problem for, you know, a hundred years or more. Um, Let me jump so, in real quick. Yeah, please. Um, you're missing a, a crucial point or maybe you said it and I didn't hear it. Uh, sure. What Brian is saying is that um, mathematically speaking, the universe does not add up. Yeah. So the the amount of mass, uh, if you if you factor in the theory of the Big Bang, the amount of mass that exists, the math doesn't. Add, I'm not a scientist, but the math doesn't add up. So they have to fill in those holes in the math with things like dark matter, dark energy. Correct. Uh, before that, it was ether. Um, you know, it's, it's been a number of things that they're just kind of patching a hole because their equations don't match their theories. So there has to be something more than just the stars and the stuff and the dust and the asteroids. There has to be there more stuff than there is. Um, like Brian said, most of the space uh, seems to just be empty. So that doesn't make sense if you, um, if you buy into the theory of the Big Bang, which Again, with the, the temperature thing, also punches a huge hole in the Big Bang theory as well, and there's a, a lot of problems with that. But I, I just wanted to uh, uh, sort of put add that to what you're saying because it's mathematically true what you're saying. Correct. So, yep. Yeah. No. Well done, Zach. I appreciate you like like laying that out. That was that was perfect, and and I agree with exactly what you said. You you got what I'm putting down here. Um, now these ideas come from a place and we're going to get to what is thought doing. I'm, I'm going to get to that. Okay. So these like concepts of dark matter and dark energy. Now they're bad concepts, mainly because they are band-aids for what is already a bad theory. Uh, you know, what is, what is already or bad, let's say flawed. Okay. Cause bad's a value judgment. Flawed is means there's things missing. Like you were just saying, the math doesn't add up. Um, so with, with that in mind, that that is, you know, that that's flawed. The reason I'm saying that it's flawed is because it doesn't match like the actions, like we said, with the uniform temperature of the universe, it doesn't match 
what we observe about the universe. So today, what we observe about the universe, and you know, I recommend anybody go ahead and hop on a search engine fast. You know, is the universe alive? And you're going to be met with articles from even if you're you know more of a into more mainstream science, you're going to run into so many articles that say, yeah, it has all of these attributes, which very much uh, matches with something that is alive, that is an entity, that is a being. Okay. So again, these are theories that I'm not, I'm not making this stuff up, you know, out, out of my own head here. Um, and so what we do know, the, like when we look at the latest research, what we do see is that the universe acts in a way, not in a way attributable to the big bang, but in a way where it acts like a being. So now if you wanted to come up with band-aids or if you wanted to come up with hypotheses within that of, okay, what is, what is causing it to constantly expand? In fact, its own expansion is part of the evidence for the idea that the universe itself is a being, right? Because it's growing just like we do, just like any, any life form we know uh, generally does. It grows in some way. Um, so did you have something, Seth? <clears throat> yeah, apparently there was a whole... Um... Morgan Freeman did a, what's it called, uh, Through the Wormhole. He did a whole thing about the yeah. cosmos. And there, apparently they did a whole episode on what you're describing. And let me just read a quote here. That, um, this is Greg, Gregory Matloff, uh, the veteran physicist at the New York City College of Technology, recently published a paper arguing that humans may be like the rest of the universe in substance and in spirit. A proto-consciousness field could extend through all of space, he argues. Stars may be thinking entities that deliberately control their paths. Put more bluntly, bluntly the entire cosmos may be self-aware. Bingo. Bingo. Yep. And I love that term, proto-consciousness field. That right on. Um, because that that idea of a consciousness field, that's really like that, that's really key. Because Again, what is causing this thing to constantly expand? What is causing everything to, you know, go round? What's making the wheels go round and round in the universe? It is consciousness itself, which is that thought. Okay, so we could we could we could interchange the terms in this case between thought and consciousness. Um, I mean, I would argue, and, and again, this is something I think that's coming down the line where you're going to be able to measure. Scientists will be measuring consciousness as particles. And in many ways, that could solve the hard, the hard problem of consciousness. Uh, but we don't we don't have to get in the weeds on that. But that thought process is what's actually making everything go round and round in the universe. The animated aspects of what is the universe uh, is that, I guess, in, in the terms of Matloff, would be the proto consciousness field, uh, which is akin to a gravity. I think gravity is still a thing that exists. But even you know, gravity. There are a lot of opposing theories on that. You, we could talk about like, you know, quantum gravity and, and other things, but again, another thing we don't have to get lost on. Um, so now what I'm essentially ultimately arguing here for is the idea. In fact, I love it that the software we're using here, uh, uh, StreamYard, its symbol is a duck, because, <laughs> which is a little synchronous because if it looks like a duck, you know, if it quacks like a duck, then it's probably a duck. Meaning, the universe does all of these things that makes it seem like it's a being, it's an entity, a life form. It very it likely very much is. And it was wonderful that you, you brought up about as above, so below. So now here's, here's kind of the, the, the second part of how I wanted to respond to your earlier question. Um, 
we're another part that we're starting to really explore and, and a tremendous book that I can't recommend enough for people to read uh, is by uh, Bruce Lipton, which is called The Biology of Belief. Um, the latest version of that book came out in 2015. I want to say the original version might have come out five or six years earlier, or maybe 10 years, actually 10 years earlier than that. It would have came out in 2005. He argues that we change our genes. Correct? Through thought. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Epigenetics through thought. That is yep. which epigenetics is like the, the conscious process of changing your genes, or at least the uh, conscious might not be the best term, but like the active part throughout your life that your genes can change. You are not a slave to how you were born, which epigenetics just flat out proves that. Now, Bruce Lipton goes so far as to say that, um, that your thought can actually change that. Okay. Now, Bruce Lipton is also basing a lot of his work on other scientists, for example, I, and I can't think of the, I think it, it's a woman who wrote a book, a tremendous book called The Song of the Cell, which also corroborates a lot of this, that at the cell, that the cellular level can be affected by thought itself. And so you're getting this parallel of what happens within the human body is exactly what's happening with the universe. You know, and, and the idea that it it's just, it's, yeah, it's turtles all the way down, right? <laughs> I hate that term, but, or that phrase, but, you know, it's, it's like, it's threes all the way down. Like, it's just constantly mirroring itself, you know, the, it, at scale, at, at every scale that you look at. Um, because he would, I mean, like Bruce Lipton would argue that we're made of, you know, human beings are made up of a, of a community of cells and that cells function in the same, shall we say, tripartite process. You know, it's just the cellular version of mind, body, spirit, you know, just like we have mind, body, spirit, and then the universe itself operates on mind, body, spirit, of course, in that sense, though, it's space, time, thought. Um, so that this is my whole, basically my whole point on uh, on that the existence is tripartite. Now, I will I will add a little bit in that there is the Indian or more particularly Hindu concept of the Akashic record. Um, I mentioned earlier that I think eventually we're going to be proving that consciousness itself is some kind of a particle. It's some kind of an element It's something like that, that that's out there much like a, you know, similar to a graviton or something along those lines. Um, I think that the human, the, the human body is as much a, to use an example of compute, you know, of, of computers. Now humans aren't computers. I want to be abundantly clear on that, but just as an example, uh, I think that, the human mind, whatever makes that up, I think it's more than just the brain. I think it's also the heart. But the human mind is a hard drive as well as a Wi-Fi antenna, meaning that, yes, you can store your own experiences, but that you do collect thought processes or thoughts or memories or whatever uh, from the grander universe. And I think this is where you really... In part, part of, and this is, this is another part of why the idea that thought is something that is permeating the entire universe. I think that it's the only way to explain, um, research based around ESP, which despite what people may think, uh, ESP is a thing. Uh, it, it's, it's been covered and recent. I mean, there, there has been so much quiet research on that in the past 70 years. Um, 
but that research has been presented before. I mean, yes, these bodies are bullshit, but it's been presented before Congress. It's been presented before many regulatory and scientific bodies over the years. Um, and the evidence stands that it is something that exists, like the ideas of remote viewing, uh, you know, and, and, and other things. Now, the really, the only way that that works is that th there is something in my, yeah, we could talk about quants and all that, but even that, if you want to talk about like, you know, uh, quant spinning and, you know, you're like, you're, uh, <laughs> whatever. I don't want to get into quantum physics. <laughs> I always hate talking about that. So but go ahead. Yeah. It's actually remarkable how similar this is to some thoughts that I've had. Sure. Uh, accumulated over the years. Um, it's not so much that I sort of imagine these thoughts and can't put them into words, although there is some of that. It's that it, it I, you ever, uh, I don't know if this happens to other people, but you start to pick up tidbits of information in lots of different places through, over years and years. Mm -hmm. And then it starts to almost paint a picture in your head and you get sort of a, an idea about something based on very small tidbits of information that sort of start to add together. And so do you remember, Brian, <clears throat> I don't know how long, a year ago maybe, I woke up one Sunday morning with crazy thought in my head, and I, I sent you a voice message rambling incoherently for about 10 minutes. Yep. And what I was saying is, I, I wasn't interested in the three uh, thing because although that interests me, with, uh, I sort of have a background in hermeticism, so the, the three thing inter, inter, uh, interests me quite a bit. But my thing was I was saying something very similar to what you're saying now, or at least it dovetails. If Now, hear me out. So if you couple what you're saying, that the universe is a conscious being, which I think it is, However, <clears throat> you couple that with the, the point you made earlier about the humans being an immune system for the universe. And then you couple this also with, <clears throat> there's been various theories within quantum physics that mathematically speaking, it seems like the universe is being holographically projected from a central point. So if you start to couple all of these things together, it would almost, shit, I lost where I was going with this again. It would almost seem to me that, yes, the universe is possibly a conscious being, but maybe we are actually part of this conscious being. And so that this conscious being exists in a, in a, um, a sense, a um, phase or, um, a form of existence that we can't even like begin to comprehend and can change it's the frequency of its particles, the, the way it manifests itself in time and space through, through thought. And this might be the also be the reason that <clears throat> when scientists, physics, physicists and quantum physicists try to observe certain particles, their observation changes the course or the end result of the um what do you call that well there's the observation principle yeah like the observation it, principle it yeah, changes exactly. where where the end point where that 
par mm -hmm. uh, the, the particle might have been. So if we sort of scale that up, if we are affecting, um, if we are affecting matter with thought and also the universe itself is affecting matter with thought, is it possible that we're talking about the same thing? And also you go into as above, so below, we are the same as the universe, which is the same as microbiology. And it's the same thing all the way down. Is it possible we're talking about one giant entity where of which we are a certain manifestation of? And that was the point I made to you that Sunday. And I think it dovetails exactly with what you're saying. Um, thoughts. Sure. Um, yeah, I, so yeah, I hear that. Uh, and I do think like, the, oh boy. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so this is the part that, you know, needs a lot more research. Um, but I do think like the observe, the observation principle is a very real thing. Um, and to some degree, I think that either we can be in a scenario where we are seeing through our eyes uh, what the universe wants us to see, or through our, you know, clouded, um, you know, shall we say our, our very clouded vision, or, you know, as maybe the Christians would say through a mirror darkly, um, you know, we're, we're seeing, we're not seeing the reality. Uh, we're basically seeing what we, what we can through our own like clouded vision, because we're not uh, for lack of a better phrase, listening to the universe well enough, you know, like our heads aren't really clear. Um, I think it's helpful to, again, because we're saying that it's as above, so below, right? So the, the human body or the human is a mirror or the human body is a mirror of the universe and vice versa. Okay. So think of humans, if you want, I'm not going to say this is their definite role, but I'm going to say, think of humans as like the gut bacteria of the universe. Now that gut bacteria can be filled and fed with things that make it healthy, like probiotics, or it can be fed with junk food. And the resulting, uh, the results of that are dramatically different. And it's so different that it actually affects uh, your entire thought processes. It affects your entire body, you know, mind and body. And then ultimately I'd argue spirit, but we don't even have to go there. Okay. Now this is not conjecture. This is science. This is scientific fact. This is medical fact that that's how gut bacteria operates. I would go so far as to say that it is a similar relationship with the universe where the, the health of the human is reflective and has a direct effect. And thus I'm saying that your thoughts have a direct effect on the universe, um, that you are like the gut bacteria to the mind of the universe. Uh, and it, again, there, there is, there is that connection. Um, what, how, what do you got sec? <clears throat> well, what you're saying would imply that it is one singular organism. Yes. Yep. I would say that. Yes. Because, uh, um, so humans are, um, an aspect of a super organism known with what we call the universe. And, Bingo. and honestly, okay. So here's the crazier part. That is what we've been able to figure out. That is what we know so far. That is not even implying that this is the limitation of all of existence either. Right. Um, 
Go ahead. Sorry. That was it. Yeah, that no, was all. Well, yeah. So I think the next question becomes for a lot of people, which is, okay, so let's say, you know, the universe is a super organism. Again, humans themselves, the individual is a super organism. You know, it, it, like I said, it just, it's the same thing as it keeps scaling. So the question becomes then this universe, the super organism that is the universe, if it's an organism, if it's a being, where does it live? Like, does it just live within itself? What's outside of it? Uh, and to that, I Bingo. would also, yeah, Bingo. I would, yep. right. So I would turn to, in this case, um, I would turn to more modern research, which uh, has been accepted to the point that it's even been like a part of major uh, scientific documentary series, say like more recent episodes of Cosmos and others. The idea that, and, and this has been probably the, the only idea that I've seen in any significant way challenge the Big Bang Theory. And this theory of the quote-unquote origin of the universe is that it exists within a fourth-dimensional black hole. So we exist in a three-dimensional universe. So what's beyond it would be a four, you know, a four-dimensional existence. And that so we're essentially like in the corona, which is a very safe place to be on a black hole, that we are in the the universe exists in the corona of a fourth-dimensional black hole. That's the idea. Now when you start playing at scales beyond the universe, like you have no idea what the hell's going on out there. So using a term like black hole or a concept of black hole, it's another case of, well, you know, okay, what would fit, you know, what, what would make sense here? Okay. A black hole is like, is a possibility. And that would allow for, I mean, this like exterior thing would allow for what brings in like where, you know, gravity, like I said, is still one of those great mysteries. How the hell does that really operate? Um, and the idea that there is a fourth dimension, shall we say, not necessarily the same fourth dimension that you'd talk about in like super string theory. Um, but, you know, this fourth dimension that things are like leaking into our three-dimensional universe from that, uh, I think that that solves a lot uh, of problems. But my whole point in saying all of this is that, yes, scientists are, if not accepting, very open to the idea that the universe itself exists within another universe, not a multiverse but just another universe that's outside of it. Uh, so there would be, there's your playground for this being that is the universe. You know, uh, the, the universe sitting inside a, a fourth dimensional black hole, that sounds an awful lot like what some people might describe as a uterus. Uh -huh. isn't, that, well, that's, yeah. isn't that interesting? <laughs> Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so this is where, you know, as far as like pulling from ancient sources, uh, of course, something I've been, you know, espousing and talking quite a bit about uh, over the past year um, on my own show, uh, you know, I've been very open about my uh, platitudes or my, um, my, uh, yeah, my acceptance of Kabbalah, you know, and, and, and research in Kabbalah. Uh, and in Kabbalah, I mean, that, that's exactly what they say is that, the universe exists between the legs, you know, of God or of, or of the infinite. They would, they actually wouldn't say God. Kabbalah is very particular about what's a God and what's not. Um, but what they would call the Ayn Sof. And so the idea is, would, or the idea would be that existence is uh, this space between the legs of the Ayn Sof, of the infinite. And that's what our universe is. And yeah, it, and you know, the idea of that being a uterus, like that, that makes Absolutely. Like that's a perfect allegory to bring up sec. Um, but, you know, I wanted to lay out 
more uh, Western and scientific terms, you know, before I even began to 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 bring in uh, the texts themselves that were really leading at um, these concepts, you know, thousands of years before uh, popular mechanics was even bothering with it. So a little side tangent. <clears throat> sure. Um, a sort of a thought experiment <clears throat> that I brought up, and I might have heard this elsewhere. Is if you if there was a being that was capable of eating the entire universe or um, existence itself, <clears throat> would you be able to observe it? The answer is probably not, right? Because how would you if it was capable of eating existence? That means it's bigger than existence mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. So if it's bigger than existence itself, chances are you you exist inside of existence right so the right. chances of you being able to observe this thing it'd be like a plankton being able to observe and eat uh, us eating the fish that it's inside of do you know what i mean it's just or yeah no yeah yeah i said that right so it's just not it's not something that you'd be able to understand or comprehend as humans with all of our sophistication so yes. if, if the universe now that's just a thought experiment. That the but I'm the where I'm going with that is, is if the universe is a conscious being, that would almost imply to me that it's not the only conscious being. I would be surprised if it was the only one. Right. right? So what are these other beings and what like what 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 are you know, what are these and <laughs> like you said if these are beings where do they live what do they exist inside of are i mean are we talking this is, this is where your brain just goes cross-eyed because you just yes. can't comprehend like this scale and this amount of dimensions or whatever you want to call it and it could go on for nearly infinite scaling up and we are only aware of a couple scales ahead of us. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So go ahead. Yeah. So, so this is where, I mean, part of like, okay, so Brian, why do you care about Kabbalah? And part of it is because it's responses to a lot of questions. Like you just asked sec are so they have such humility meaning. So they, they ask the same thing, like, you know, okay. So what, what is the iron sof or what, what does the iron sof exist within and all this? And, and believe me, these questions do get asked in books that are 2000 years old or more. And when they ask that question, they essentially say, you can't know. All you can say is what it's not. That's all that you can only apply negative attributes. Like you can only not negative isn't bad, but negative isn't like, it's only what you, what it isn't that you can say. And so that humility as to where even something like, uh, Hinduism, which a lot of scientists are actually very attracted to, but like something with Hinduism, Hinduism says, no, no, I have all the answers. I've got it all. We know, we know exactly this and that. That's where Kabbalah says there is a point where you stop, where your mind expands so much and you just stop and you say, okay, no, I can't possibly know this, but I can say what it's not. And I think when you get to that scale, that's really all we as humans are capable of is just knowing effectively um you know what what it's what it's not in in that case so does, does that make sense yeah for sure right now i have a, another quick question uh so oh for anybody that doesn't know kabbalah is jewish mysticism 
or yeah. call it what you like. Yep. Um, if the Ein Sof sits, no, I'm sorry, the universe sits between the legs of the Ein Sof. Yep. And the Ein Sof is not God. The question becomes, where does God sit? Where does God fit into that? In at least in the interpretation of uh, theorists of around Kabbalah. Yeah. So within Kabbalah, um, so the the very first verse of 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 Torah, the very first verse of the book of Genesis, you know, is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Right. Now in Kabbalah, they are actually, if you just look at the Hebrew, you don't even have to go to, to, to like the book of Zohar for the, which is kind of the Kabbalist primary text. Okay. If you actually translate that directly, it, the, the equations reversed. It says, uh, in the beginning, the infinite created God. That's, that's how you would directly translate the Hebrew of the very first verse of the Bible. And so the infinite is Ein Sof. And it's very interesting because it's effectively saying God is something else. I would go so far as to, you know, I would argue that what that's saying is, is that the Ein Sof is that fourth dimensional black hole, or it's that area outside of that, and that God is the universe. And so when I use a phrase like, say, thou art God, and you're a part of, you know, the universe, right? That, that's part of the answer to that, or, you know, like, wait a minute, what do you mean that I'm God? When you ask that question, that's part of the answer is that because the universe itself is God and you are part of it. Um, so does, does that, does that make sense as far as like what the, what the Kabbalists would say is like, what is the Ein Sof? What is that sitting in? I don't think, again, when you get to the Ein Sof, that conversation in the book of Sohar and to, you know, for Kabbalists in general, they would essentially say, like I said earlier, you can only say what it's not. You can't really say what it is. So I'm not going to pretend to do that. But, you know, for ease and to get in line with modern research, I would say fourth dimensional black hole, fine. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So, so wait a minute. Okay. So back to thought. Let's, let's yep. circle back to your, so if we can use whatever terms we want, I'm comfortable with Kabbalah or modern research, but sure. If the Ein Sof is this fourth dimensional black hole mm -hmm. and the universe is created by this Ein Sof mm -hmm. and the universe is a conscious being made up of mostly thought and space and time, does that, are we scaling? that tripartite nature of the universe up to the Ein Sof. So is, does that mean that <laughs> the fourth dimensional black hole is also conscious? Does it mean that it is also made of space, time, and thought? As, as a Kabbalist, all I can say is, uh, I don't know. You know what it's not, <laughs> but, but, uh, but uh, would I be surprised? No. No, I wouldn't be surprised at all that it just it just keeps going, you know, constantly in that direction. But I think that's I think that I love that asking those kinds of questions because that's how you can help define everything beneath it um, and understand what's beneath it. Uh, but I think that's one that like we'll we'll probably never really know the answer to. Well, so you know, 
one plus one plus one is three. Three plus three plus three is nine. You go keep going on in this pattern, right? Mm -hmm. If we, uh, <laughs> this is great. We uh, we exist like our gut bacteria, at, like life exists at on a microscopic level, and then we also exist the same as the stars and the cosmos and the universe that would seem to imply that that would scale up again. Right. Yeah. So, yep. So if we're saying that the universe is a conscious being made of space, time and thought that would seem, and we are also made of some variation of space, time and thought. And so is microbiomes. Um, that would seem to also imply that the Ein Sof is made of space, time, and thought. Yes. Or do you, yes, because that yeah. pattern would follow, unless that pattern stops there, which is possible but unlikely. Right. So, um, what what else is the Ein Sof not? Maybe we'll start there. Oh boy. Uh <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to go into Kabbalah if you don't want to. Yeah. I've been enjoying the ride on your show. We can, you know, but um, yeah. it seems to fit here. I don't know why. So Yeah. Um, well, I mean, again, just to be clear, like I think Kabbalah is just is science, not sciences necessarily. I mean, it is science as we understand it today, but it is also science. I think Kabbalah, and I, I know I've said this on like my Patreon Q and A's and whatever. Um, that Kabbalah will ultimately come to the conclusion. Humanity will eventually come to the conclusion that Kabbalah is like that science that exists. It's the high science. It's the exact, it's the science that exists above Newtonian physics. It's the science that exists above quantum physics. It's the science, you know, it is the, like, it's the actual explanation, you know, of the universe. I think eventually we will get there. Um, so just to understand what, like what I think of Kabbalah, I actually, I don't, it is mysticism in that sense, but I actually really consider it to be science. And when you read it from its practitioners, they called it science. When you see the term science in Kabbalistic books, they're talking about Kabbalah itself when they say that. Um, so I, you know, I, I think we'll get there. Um, as far as what else the, the Ayin Sof is not, um, I mean, so Kabbalah would say that, that it's not, and actually Maimonides would say this as well, that who who's a very famous Jewish philosopher um, and rabbi, you know, they would say that like the, the, the Ein Sof has no body, like it doesn't have a body. And that's the, the idea that it doesn't have a body is sort of what, why I'm not, you know, exactly going to, or going to say with certainty that this scales all the way up. Right. Like, like we, like you were talking about one plus one plus one plus, you know, three plus three plus three and so on. Uh, because it seems to say very clearly that it doesn't have a body, but then when it's saying it doesn't have a body, does that just mean it doesn't have a human body? Okay. But it has some kind of a body. Like it looks like a, a fish. Sure. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it, it could look like anything. Um, you know, I'm, I'm open to that. Uh, so there is, there's that aspect of it. Um, but I mean, as far as other things to say that it's not, you'd really just kind of look at any, anything you could almost apply to it. You'd basically say, it's not that, it's not that, it's not that. Um, well, and, so go ahead. He, let me get weird with you for a second. Yeah, um, sure. I have potentially <laughs> interacted with entities that had no body, but had intelligence. Uh -huh. yeah. So 
it's maybe what they it could be what they mean is no form you know like no yes, sure per, permanent form you Bingo, know it, sure um there's lots of things that may have intelligence but no body so it doesn't necessarily follow to me that because we describe it as having no body that to me this still scale might scale up it just yeah, right. might be, exist in a different way than we think um yeah it could ahead. be a being made of smoke yeah sure yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm told yeah I'm, with, I'm open to that changing shapes or whatever you know the thing that something just it could just be pure thought you haven't i don't know so yep. yeah it might not exist in a body the same way we think of things like that you know there's there might, not everything has to have a form right if that makes sense yeah yeah no totally i agree yeah yeah Penguin, you got anything? Yeah, what, I was just gonna say that too. Penguin, <laughs> you got anything, man? I, like, I, no, I love no, it that you're I'm letting us just it all in. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, no, no, I'm taking it all in. Sure, um, it's no, not really my area of expertise. I've really put a lot of thought into it, but yeah. So, what does yeah. Muhammad say about this, Penguin? Um, you know, this is I, honestly outside of my um my depth of knowledge this is because it's kind of like mysticism you know and I, I haven't really i haven't really dealt with a lot of mysticism or like this this uh sort of philosophy so um so you haven't explored know. like sufism Definitely. at all penguin i was just gonna ask that no yeah. no 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 i haven't it's not really yeah it's not really something i'm super interested in sure um so i can't really tell you a whole lot about that to be honest with you i've, I've never really dealt with any sort of mysticism as a matter of fact right on i like my religion straight up um <laughs> i don't know straight up Whatever the opposite of mysticism is, very straight up and pragmatic, you know, guess yeah. pray five times a day and I, I do it. And it's the end of that pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. Keep it to cause and effect. <laughs> I hear that. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll just comment quick. I know a lot of, I mean, Kabbalism itself has gone through waves of popularity and it's really, it seems like it's getting on another high, uh, and I don't want to get lost on a conversation as to why that is. I mean, there certainly is one to be had, but um, there are, there is a lot of intermingling and uh, shall I say outreach, not evangelical is, you know, not, not evangelist outreach, but just straight outreach between Kabbalist and Sufi thinkers in that there, there is, there's a lot of shared concepts. Uh, I think that you find in those, which I think is very interesting. Uh, more particularly because, I mean, you do have a, like a Christian Kabbalah, but they basically just lift everything from the Jews, you know, as to where Islam has, a, you know, a lot of, I would argue, more independent uh, thought, you know, to come out, even though there's a lot of, obviously, a lot of shared stories and books, you know, within. Oh, uh, yeah. But it, Bibles, a lot of that but... is, a lot of the Islamic, uh, this, the so-called Islamic uh, philosophy um, takes a lot from the Greeks. There's a lot of... Um, yeah, there's a lot of going back to, to the Greece for that. So Yeah, or, or even vice versa, maybe. Right. No, 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 no. I mean, chronologically, the, the ancient Greeks, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. and then yeah, the ancient the ancient Greek philosophers, um, for sure. And then there's, you know, some of that is literally just a, a continuation mm -hmm. of, of that tradition. And that tradition then continued further outside of the Islamic world. So as far as like true, truly solely Islamic um teachings like I, i'm not too terribly familiar with that because there's obviously like um people that uh accept you know that that tradition of like the continuation of the ancient greek philosophy and the mm -hmm. islamic tradition people that kind of reject that as being outside 
Um, so there's, but those that was bit treated as being outside is Islamic. What I'm familiar with Islamic uh, schools of thought are very, it's very, it's very about, it's very legalistic and lo- logical about applying mm-hmm. actually religious law. But in terms of actual mysticism or the nature of the universe and stuff like that, there is some, but it really wouldn't. Some of this I, I honestly have only picked up on on Twitter, and because it, it's very, very in the weeds for those that aren't aren't um, you know, read in that. But um, right. it's, it's not terribly mystical. It's it's just about the nature of God. People arguing about the nature of God and uh, what what you should and should not say and so forth. But I've never mm-hmm. I've never heard anything about anything that's really comparable to this. I, I'm sure in, in Sufism there's a, there's close analogs for sure fair enough well so the 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 islamic world might have um borrowed from the greeks but that's literally every culture you know so like the greeks were borrowing from the egyptians and you know the the uh the christians are borrowing from the jews but the jews are borrowing from probably the babylonians and the possibly the sumerians as well and there's one other one they might have been borrowing from as well so there's um these ideas might yeah, there's definitely a back and forth between um, the Jewish, Jewish uh, I guess, Jewish mysticism and Islamic, for sure. I know that 100 percent because they yeah. would have they yes. would have been exist in existence at the same time. Yeah. And historically, like in know, the same place, the past yes. 2000. Yeah. And historically, in the past 2000 years, Islam has really allowed Judaism to flourish far more than any part of Europe. Uh so yeah, the the idea that there's you know there, there's a some connective tissue there at times, an idea borrowing and swapping and everything. I mean, it, it just it doesn't surprise me at all because of the level of respect that really was held, uh, at least in many areas. You know, in comparison to how either you know Islam or uh, or Jews were treated by Christians, which was the exact opposite. Um, so I wouldn't argue with, I wouldn't call it stealing between the two as for the Christians. I just think they, they, they kind of stole <laughs> so much, but anyway, yeah. And, and sec to your point, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Like you can find so much of what's in, in Torah, you know, that that would come from the Zoroastrians, right. Um, or that they borrowed from the Babylonians or that they borrowed from the Sumerians or even the Egyptians themselves, like completely, like, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of. And, and I think it comes down to that there is that, like, there is that one singular uh, spirituality. I don't want to say religion, but there is that one singular spirituality. Um, I myself would argue that that is what actually Kabbalah is and that it's something that even exists beyond Judaism. But, you know, that's a conversation perhaps for, for another time. Yeah, um, there is an Islamic analog to that. There is basically considered to be a, um, and it's kind of debated what exactly this means. Um, but there is a general idea that there is a basic disposition that in, innate in people. That's a basic spirituality, exactly like that. And it's been interpreted a little. Some some people have interpreted it a little closely that everybody is basically born as a Muslim. And I've I've, I've heard again. This was just really just a tweet. But I've um, I mean, it's pretty clear from the tradition that it's that's that's going a little too far with the interpretation. But what it's it's saying is there is an innate spirituality that kind of understands the concept of god and stuff and i think that that's a pretty shared concept like in cross-culturally and cross-religions for sure sure i mean even christianity would have that where the apostle paul like he abundantly says that all you have to do is read the book of nature you know to know of god um 
And so, his, you know, his point was. <laughs> that's course, very interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. That, that goes back to the Greeks and that goes back to um, one of the one of the early, really, really famous Islamic thinkers. And I can't remember which one because I'm not really well versed in medieval philosophers, Islamic or otherwise. But um, the the idea of like someone who is is, is born in complete uh, a human being that's born in complete isolation uh, from from humanity and raised in the wild can can he know God or like what does he know of God or what does he know of morality? And that is a very common like that's a very common train of thought that I think different philosophers in like the medieval period had struggled with. And I think it goes back to Plato, either Plato or Aristotle. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but that's definitely a concept. And that's where that tradition, which I'm that I know it comes back to a hadith of the prophet Muhammad, so like this of them, that he actually, um, where, where we get this idea of this basic, uh, innate disposition towards God in general. And of course it doesn't mean the actual like text of the actual religion as it's revealed. If you've never heard of it, but, um, you know, the, the idea that there is a debate whether you can know God and, and, and morality and, and, and what right and wrong from nature and then what what actually religion, how, what religion uh, has an effect, how religion has an effect on that, or whether, you know, it's only through learning about the nature of God and the revelation of scripture and so forth and so on. That you can actually know morality. So there, and that's a debate. That's like a philosophical debate that I think was had. And I'm, I'm certain. I know in the Islamic world, but I'm certain in the Christian and other traditions as well. Yeah, yeah. Sec, what do you got? I think it's interesting that we start. We keep seeing, like what you guys have been describing. I just it got me on this thought path of like we keep seeing, like, echoes of the same thing over and over throughout human history and different religious traditions and um, almost the s same characters, you know, so well, like the Islamics, uh, they borrowed from the Greeks who borrowed from the Egyptians. Well, um, you know, you had um, the God Thoth, which was very, very similar to Hermes Trismegistus. And it goes, um, you have a lot of the same, characters or archetypes like throughout history who are teaching very similar things. You might even throw Christ in there too. Who knows? Mm -hmm. um, but this kind of goes back to where you were saying that there might be something that exists beyond, um, beyond Kabbalah or beyond Islam or, or whatever this. So this reminds me of a, <clears throat> something I was watching not long ago and they brought up the, the point that, they're actually finding out that the god Pan has existed in many forms mm. in different cultures all throughout history, going back like 20,000 years. Now, some of the myths around Pan is, yeah, he's this, this mischievous god, and he's got horns and stuff, but he takes different forms. He doesn't actually have a form. And some have made the argument that he's actually like just he's the earth itself. And that's the form that our brain makes when trying to <laughs> give him a form that we can comprehend. Right. So, but he's existed throughout 
time. Like there's cave painting is in ancient France 20,000 years ago of a whole, like a horn God in green with playing a flute. Mm-hmm. So you, um, if you kind of go throughout history, there was, I believe in, um, there's an, an Islamic teacher that dressed in green as well. Um, who was known to be rather mischievous. Um, I can't remember his name now, but he dressed in green for some green. reason. Huh? That was his name was basically green. Mm, green. Maybe this would have been medieval times. Anyway. No, 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 no. This is uh, unless you're talking about something different. This is actually. Yeah, I think I'm talking um, about something uh, different. This is actually uh, Surah Takaf. This is like the the Surah of uh, the cave where there was a story about um, the adolescent, I believe, uh, the adolescent Moses that um, encountered this guy. It's called Green, the, the green one, I guess. Mm. That, um, yeah, that um, he, ah, I don't want to get the story wrong, and I think we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but he um, did things. He, he, did, he counted the situations and, and, and dealt with them in these mysterious ways that were inexplicable, but then at the end, he did these, like, you know, sometimes horrible and inexplicable actions and then he explained that in all three scenarios that he had knowledge that that, that was unseen that actually that the consequence of him doing those those three things for example like he uh caused he he was hired to i think repair a wall and then he caused the wall to collapse but when he did that it revealed the like a like a treasure that was the inheritance of these orphan kids or something and it's but he revealed. He only revealed that fact after Moses finally confronted him after the three increasingly like terrible things that he did to explain himself. And I don't remember what the, exactly the the point of the parable was, because um, I haven't really studied that so well. But um, that's basically that's exactly what you're referring to, I believe. The, the, the green. Yeah, you might be right. You might be right. Yeah, but, but it was I supposed didn't... to be in the, in the time in the like adolescence of uh, Moses, like in between when he was, you know, born and, uh, you know, when he came back to to free the uh, the Israelites. Um, Yeah, but this, okay, so this character has, uh, I think you are talking about who I'm talking about, but anyway, this this character Pan has existed throughout human history. It almost seems like... uh, Yeah, very mysterious character, by the way. Yeah, very mysterious I've never heard about him in any other context, and he's called green. He's called the green, green one, and the green guy. So, oh yeah, very mysterious. Yeah. Um, so I forgot where I was going with this, but um, it may be that we're dealing with something beyond our understanding. Like I don't, you know, I'm not saying that it's gods, but it might be that when our brain interacts with uh let's say the universe as an actual being mm-hmm. it manifests itself in various forms and one of these older forms might be the god pan or whatever the thing these these uh religions that have existed for as old as human human no- uh knowledge of humanity right so right. it's possible that these things are uh, sort of manifestations of that and they seem to be repeating 
very similar ideas over and over again throughout human history, which would imply knowledge that exists outside of sort of human consciousness or something like, like an Akashic record, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you think about that? Yeah. You know, I got to, when I'm hearing all this, I'm also thinking of like uh, the green man uh, from like Arthurian legends, yes. uh, you know, yep. very, very similar, you know, helping Gawain with various trials and all of this. Um, that, yeah. That's said to be pan as well. Yeah. That's yeah. To be pan as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is something I'm going to be reading up hard on. I appreciate that. Zach. <laughs> that, that That's a fascinating theory. Um, I mean, the idea that there is like a really ancient body of knowledge worming its way through varying uh, mythologies and religions and spiritualities, I think is a very real thing. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give people a little bit of homework on as far as books, if they want to check out, like to see like, all right, how is this actually possible? There's a tremendous book called the Hiram Key Revisited by uh, Christopher Knight and Alan Butler. Um, Don't read everything by them. I mean, you can, if you want, but the Hiram Key Revisited makes a fascinating uh, case of this very idea that there is this, I mean, and it, it, it worms its way through every religion you could think of, um, of like this really seemingly ancient body of knowledge, you know, going back before recorded time. Um, and then, so there's that. So people can check that out if they want an idea of like, wait, how could this, you know, necessarily happen? Now, I mean, sex idea that it's something that is actually like a manifestation from the, shall we say, the universal mind. Uh, that's a fascinating one to explore as well. Um, but as far as, I mean, the other the other book I want to make sure that I get out there that people check out, as far as this idea of, okay, well, what is what could be beyond the universe, like Sek and I were discussing earlier as well, um, there's a tremendous science fiction novel. I mean, the, the Hiram Key Revisited book is not fiction, but this is a science fiction novel called Star Maker by Olaf Stapleton. Um, and it really gets into that very that very question of what is beyond. Uh, and it, I mean, we're, this book deals with like you know sentient planets and star systems. And all. It, it's it's just a wild read. Probably the greatest, maybe the greatest book of all time as far as fiction goes. Uh, and maybe, or at the very least, I would argue it's the greatest science fiction novel of all time. Um, it, and because it plays at scales that I don't think any other science fiction ever has. Um, so if you're looking for some great mind expanding stuff, there, there, there are a couple of books, uh, that, that you could check out, you know, from, uh, from the get go. Could you repeat that? The name of that book again? I missed uh, the title. The sci-fi novel. Mm, that, yeah. I think so. Yeah. That's star maker. Oh yeah. Okay. I'm familiar. Yeah. But, yeah, 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 yeah. By Olaf Stapleton. Um, he yeah. has other books, all of, I think his entire, uh, uh, canons worth reading, but, um, but star maker is the one you definitely want to, you want to get in. I, I apologize. I was reading on the green one for a second there. I, that that was my bad. I wasn't paying as much close. No, no worries. <laughs> no, that's uh, Peg and you were spot on, and that's the that's the dude I was talking about. And that character reoccurs over and over throughout history. Interestingly, enough. that I did not know. Yeah, uh-huh. cool. Because um, um, yeah, and it was one. funny. Is there's no like there's no like analogous guy. There's no blue or red or there's nothing even comparable. So it's, it's such a mysterious story there's actually a couple in that sura as a matter of fact because there's an, there's another one that is about um a conqueror that went from the, the far east to the far west and people some people say it was alexander the great some people said it was cyrus and some people have said 
whatever then it's a, it's a mystery we don't know um but that, that's a really interesting one too if you if you're interested in ancient history um the story of uh Dulcarnade. and that that involves also like building a wall of iron to hold back gog and magog as you know as also featured um in the uh book of revelation and um, yeah, yeah some, you know some pretty far out stuff in that one actually it's it's pretty interesting, like because the idea of at least within the examples I know of of what we'll call the Green Man, um, it's like a, a woodsy character, you know, like a <laughs> like a not not a wood nymph. I wouldn't say that, but I mean, like it's usually a very like it's a character that describes some degree of a, a primal like a nature spirit. Yeah. yeah, like a nature spirit. Um, yeah. And and you know, I I can't help but that that does make me think of you know, a few characters, uh, it makes me think of Enkidu in, uh, in Sumerian literature, which Enkidu was not human. You know, people forget that, um, Gilgamesh was, but, Enk but, you know, but his best friend Enkidu was not, he, he was this, this feral thing. Um, and it also makes me think of how Elijah was described. Um, he wasn't green, but, uh, you know, that it's going to make me go back to the Hebrew on that because now I'm wondering <laughs> because I'm like, wait, is there anything in here that's describing Elijah as green? You know, because he's this immortal or he's a character that even within, if you followed the timeline, you know, if you followed it chronologically, uh, Elijah seems to have lived for 400 years just in the Old Testament alone. You know, that's not even a question of did he actually die or did he go up in a fiery chariot or how'd that go? Um but like the same character is described over a 400 year period, which is very weird. Uh, and I'll even, you know, I'll throw a bone to the Christians. John the Baptist, you know, was that, that the, the wild man, you know, in the wilderness, yep. um, which actually, when you read the Hiram key revisited, which I mentioned earlier, very interesting theory around who was actually the Messiah. Was it Jesus or was it John the Baptist uh, that makes the book worth reading alone? But, Anyway, just just adding. Well, I mean, those, just those think ends. about just think about that trope of the wild man in the in the wilderness with knowledge. Right. Think about existing outside of civilization. Does, yes, how many times does that reoccur throughout cultures and literature and whatever, all throughout history? Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, some people would make the argument that that is the that the Earth is a living being, and that is what the uh, when the earth wants to communicate with us, that's the form that we see. Um, yeah. I've made the argument uh, a few times, and I'm probably not the only one to do this, but uh, no, I'm definitely not, um, that we are the, actually the ones making these forms with our brains. So like, um, you know, the, the concept of like a, the brain will fill in patterns, right? If we don't understand what we're seeing, our brain will fill in the pattern or we see faces in clouds and we see faces in various things. Cause our brain just, well, if we don't, if what we're seeing does not make sense to us, we will make it make sense. Our brain will make it make sense. Yeah. We so, are pattern seeking animals. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So, well, so, okay. So we, so we come across a being that our brain cannot comprehend or communicate with. What do you think our brain is going to do? So it may be possible that our brain, our brains just make this, this might happen to lots of different entities, mm -hmm. but speaking specifically to Pan, uh, 
our brain just might make this form because it's the closest thing our brain can comprehend and it fits right so then we project this image and it takes it sort of takes that form it's sort of like uh two things glad handing together our our brain making this pattern and this entity and we end up with some a very similar character throughout human history who's taken somewhat similar forms whether it's the wild man or the goat god or the green man or uh, it seems to be reoccurring now you could take that the same idea and apply it to a lot of other things such as extraterrestrials or ultra terrestrials or throughout history some people might have called, called them fairies and then all of a sudden we call them other things and now we call them aliens so that might be might be talking about very similar entities throughout human history we just we might have called them angels thousands of years ago as well mm-hmm. we might be talking about very similar entities that our brain just makes just attaches an image to so we can attempt to comprehend or communicate with it um sorry go ahead no, all all I have to say is I'm going to deep dive on this so hard. Like, <laughs> this, this is fascinating well stuff. Um, well, good. And you can tell me what the show was later uh, that you caught because I'd be intrigued to see what they said. But I'm going to definitely go on my own research trail. Uh, that's ma- amazing. Uh, it's hellier. Uh, if um, if anybody wants to go for uh, for an interesting ride, it's on. I don't know what it's on. It's on one of the streaming platforms, but it's mm-hmm. it's hellier. And whatever the description says that that show is about, it's not about that at all. So um, just yeah, go for a little ride on that. It'll kind of bend your mind a little. Um, it's very interesting documenting. It starts off as sort of like a very basic, I don't know, paranormal documentary, and then it kind of goes into some very interesting questions. Yeah, it looks like it's on Amazon Prime at least. So yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I would, yeah, I would recommend that. Um, it talks about a lot of the ideas that I've just been talking about. So uh, right, it's interesting. Um, well, I mean, for me, I don't know. I I, I love ending on this kind of uh, exploration, you know. <laughs> so um, uh, go ahead. No. Um, no, you, we should, but I got one bone to pick with you, and then we can go. Oh, oh man. Okay. All right. So, if for anybody listening, Brian and his wife have a very lovely newsletter that I skim through every month, and um, or every couple of weeks, every couple of weeks, and it's the Sovereign Technical Newsletter, and what on one of your most recent episodes you discussed one of the um, articles that you wrote in your newsletter so everyone should go check out both his the episode which i believe was anti and the sovereign technical newsletter um because it's pretty awesome it's not just about tech either he goes into all sorts of wild stuff and interesting and valuable information and i really dig it i don't read every word every time but i definitely scroll through and read what i find uh interesting at the time honored so you mentioned in your recent episode, it wasn't your most recent, but the, I believe it was called Anti, correct? Yeah, that's the name of the episode. It's a couple episodes back. Uh, it's just called Anti. That's the name of the episode. Yeah. Yep. Great episode. Um, and the intro to that was awesome. I don't remember who that was, but um, 
So basically you were making the argument that mysticism or spirituality is antithetical to philosophy and economics and the material world and also money. And I agree with all those things. Um, and I, I'd like to see other people coming to the conclusion that, hey, maybe it's, you know, the highest goal isn't economic production and efficiency, right? Maybe we can, maybe other things are more important to the human condition. And, you know, maybe everything doesn't have to be measured and quantified and commodified, right? I, I love this thought and I'd like to see more expansion on this thought. And I really enjoyed the article. Mm. My only thing is, and I quoted this to you in your discord is uh, I, I quoted silver chair, which was interesting. And it was basically that anyone that says that money can't buy you happiness has never tried to live without it. Now you say that, that you know, money, it, maybe this is just the nature of money or the nature of our economy currently, but you say that money is not going to be able to lead you to um, personal growth or spiritual enlightenment or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And I disagree in the sense that you have to get yourself. Okay. Stressing about money is a fucking killer. And you know, yes. I know everybody oh, yeah. knows that it will kill you, dude. It nothing in you won't sleep. Yep. Whatever. So if you're stressed about money, you don't have the fucking luxury to even <laughs> start to begin to work on that personal growth or internal monologue or tr strive towards something spiritual, right? You have to get yourself comfortable. Now, once you go start going past that and you're striving for money for the just for the sake of more money and more, more, more. Yeah, that's an empty, you know, that's an empty uh empty pursuit. There's nothing there. There's no, yep. there, you know, um, there's, that's not what life is about. You know, you got to get to that point where like, okay, we're comfortable. We can have fun and do the things you want. The things often the things I want to enjoy and have experience sometimes most of the often they don't require money, but sometimes they do. I want to take my kids to go do whatever the thing or whatever, you know, I have fun. That's what the, you know, that's more important than money, but sometimes that money, uh, sometimes that requires money. So at least in our current paradigm, I think to a certain point, no, spirituality does require money. Oddly enough, and I fucking feel gross saying this. I really do. <laughs> but I, <laughs> but you need to be comfortable, right? You need to be at least not stressed about it. Because you yes. won't be able to reach a, a, any kind of higher plane of existence if you're fucking stressed about money or where you're going to feed your kids or what's going to happen in my next paycheck. Am I going to be able to make rent? It's fucking hard, man. So, and I grew up poor. It's, I, yeah. it sucks, man. It really does. And I, I will do whatever I got to do to not ever be fucking poor again. Right. So, um, what, yeah, how do we, because I find myself doing this all the time too. Ah, you don't need fucking money. You know, that's not what life's about. You know, life's mm -hmm. really about these other things. It's like, well, it's easy to say when I'm comfortable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Not everybody's in that position. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm privileged to be in the position where I can think about these higher ideas and I don't have to worry about where my next meal's coming from. Right. So mm -hmm. how do we describe this, this balance of like, yes, 
you need to take care of your material conditions, but that's not the end goal. It's not a goal in and of itself. Right. That's just gives you the fuel to reach something different. How do we describe this balance? Right. Um, yeah. Thoughts on that. Sure. So, so the article that I wrote, it's the, the anti-economics of spirituality. And I want to read, I'll read directly from it just to kind of like, cause I agree with everything you're saying sick. Like I totally agree. Uh, so here, here it is from, from the article. So quote, to be clear, you're not going to starve for taking more time to practice your spirituality, but you will find less and less time for more, shall we say, hollow pursuits. Do you need money to survive in today's materialistic world? Yes, more or less. Can you buy and do cool things with more money? Yes, absolutely. So now it goes on from there, you know, explaining like, okay, but supposedly this is what you get if you have money. But guess what? You can actually get it without it and, and all of that. So as far as the balance, like, yeah, you're again, you're completely right. Um, and this is something, you know, where honestly, I think the communists, uh, as much as I completely disagree with, or as much as I disagree with them, I guess I'll say, uh, their point is right on that one of the major ills of civilization is that if you're expecting people to produce and be creative and productive, they can't do that truly when they're worried about a roof over their head or where the next meal is going to come from. And that's one of the, like the idea that communism is all about the community. No, no, no. They're, they, you know, communists would actually argue, no, it is about the individual and allowing the individual to really flourish can only happen when the standards that you lay, you know, listed off sec are met, you know, at the beginning. And I think they're kind of right about that. I'm not saying I agree with how they get to there, but I do agree with their point that you can't actually, you can't even begin to think about these things uh, unless you have a certain amount of comfort, you know, in your life. And in today's world, that does, as I said, require money more or less, um, you know, and, and the idea that like, you know, can, can money buy you happiness? Yeah, totally. Like, but here's, here's where you, you have to, as far as the balance, this is the most important concept to understand and kind of one of the key points I was trying to make. Uh, and I do say trying, I don't always succeed in what I'm trying to say, but uh, one of the key points I was trying to make is that money is limited. It hasn't, not that like, I mean, we could print endless money, I guess, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there is an upper limit to the depths of happiness that you can feel with money. Like money, help money can buy you a wife, but is it going to be the same wife that you get from like actually engaging, in, uh, you know, in love and wooing and, you know, all these other wonderful things that we normally go through in our, 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 you know, uh, ancient mating dance, you know, like money isn't going to be able to buy the connection. It can buy the thing, but it's not going to really be able to buy the connection that comes from the heart. So what's key is to understand that money is limited in application. Um, and yes, get to a point where you're comfortable, but always bear in mind that there are um, higher pursuits that you can get to that money will never get you to. And spirituality is a key part of that. So I think that's the balance. Um, I have one other comment on that, but but if Penguin or Sec, if you have something you want to respond to with that, go for it. Yeah, this is where it gets tricky being... Uh sort of an anarchist that's fond of markets, right? Because it's like, right. well, where do we start to draw the line? And the communists were right on a lot of things about like just commodifying every 
last little aspect of like human experience. You know, so I just got, I just tweeted the other day. I said, the older I get, the more I find the commodification of everything gross. I love me some market activity, but maybe every last little aspect of the human experience doesn't have to be bought and sold. And this was probably right after we were having our conversation on your discord. Mm -hmm. But um, this is something I've been trying to come to terms with and find. I don't know how to find the line. It's one of those things that like, uh, I just know it when I see it. Right. It's one of those things where it's like, I like markets and I like sort of the entrepreneurial spirit. And I like, part of me likes to hustle and whatever. And and I think markets is actually the best way to make it so more people can do things that they really enjoy doing um, and, and create the space and the abundance that they can make a living doing things that they actually enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the best way to go about that. It's, it's almost an anti-work position, you know, but, right. um, but on the other hand, it's like, I start seeing like, drone advertising it in the night sky for like candy crush apps and yeah. I, I just want to blow my brains out i'm like stop oh just stop you know like it's like do we have to have or like permits so that you can go look up at the stars do you know what i mean right. so it's like do we need to like do we have to put a price tag and, and on everything and also who the fuck am i to say what we put a price tag on or not do you know what i mean like so yeah. where where is the line drawn where it there's a certain point where even for me as, as someone who likes free markets, it's just gross. It's just gross. It's just, I, I, I can't give you too many examples now, but just the turning everything into a fucking commodity. It's like, relax, you know, and maybe this wouldn't be the case in a free market. Maybe we would have the abundance to where like not every little thing has to be like uh, a mark, a checkbox on a, on a form and a, and a, and a, a price tag. Maybe we get to that point. I don't know, but the communists are right. At least on this part, they really are. Yeah. I want to get, want to get in two things on that. Um, so my fear is that that is that I don't think freed markets would stop that from happening. And I said freed, not free even, you know, I do, I really don't. And my example is uh, early 20th century Niagara Falls. Uh, I, I highly recommend watching a documentary or something on that. Um, there, believe it or not in New York, again, this is, you know, over a hundred years ago, uh, you actually had a pretty lax legislation and you saw one of the earth's grand, you know, greatest beauties and natural resources have exactly what happened, what what you just described sec, where everything was commoditized. And it got so bad that like an entire wall was erected around this thing. You couldn't even see it. And like you had people paying, it was like a, it was like a, a five cent peep show in New York city to be able to see this damn thing. Like, but they, they erected just a gigantic wall so that no, you want to see the, <laughs> the fucking earth you were born into. If you want to see it, you're going to pay, you know, whatever to see past my shitty wall. Um, and I am, I'm very concerned that that's exactly how things would turn out. That doesn't mean I want to regulate shit like what ended up happening to Niagara falls, but I am worried that that's not enough. Now, the second point I want to make quick is that, Marx, Karl Marx, actually didn't have a problem with markets. His problem was that, because he said that markets or capitalism would be, which I know for some people those can be different things and that's fine. But his point was that markets are a necessary step to human evolution. Like you have to go there and let them run their course and do their thing. 
And then you move on from that. So his actual problem was not evolving from the market system. Um, and, and of course, then the next step would be communism. And I would say that Marx was actually even talking about going beyond that. Now, I don't like Marx. I'm not, you know, I'm not defending him here. But I'm just saying that let's understand that the communists do understand the importance of markets and that they actually thought they were a good thing. It's just that eventually you have to evolve beyond that. Now, I'm not going to say we're going to evolve into communism. I would say that we should evolve, you know, even beyond that. But again, that's that's a massive subject. You want to know a funny thing? Bastiat makes the same argument. Yeah, right. Yes. So he makes the argument in Economic Harmonies, uh, Chapter 8, uh, private property in the Commonwealth. And essentially, uh, there, there's one paragraph that I, I quote sometimes, but he basically says that um, a free uh, market that respects property will eventually create so much abundance that more and more things get removed from the, uh, the concept of property and into the common domain. That's so, almost exactly what Marx says. Yes. yes yeah. It's very yeah. similar. Um, yep. And I tend to agree with that um, for, you know, for the most part that it would almost lead to, I hate using the term post-scarcity because everyone takes right. me very, very too literally. Like, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Listen, I understand yeah. there is finite resources and that right. there is not actual like non-scarcity. I understand like that there is these things. The, uh, so an actual like literal post scarcity could not exist at least until we're traveling to the cosmos and then who knows so it's not yeah. post scarcity in absolute terms but i mean in practical terms uh, you could get yeah in practical price. or de facto you could reach a point to where there was so much abundance that people valued these things far less this is basic supply and demand like you know uh, I mean, we could be heading there pretty quickly to be honest with you yes. i mean uh, you, you know i mean just look at now compared to 100 years ago or 50 years ago. Um, you know, we do complain a lot about like the the, the status quo and, and and the progress of things or the direction of things, I should say. But that being said, that like tremendous efforts are being made. You know, one of the my big ways of like um, framing like the stuff like we talk about on the podcast, where we critique a lot of things. Excuse me, is that sometimes I feel like there's like basically um, fundamentally conservative forces that are basically because they're in a position of power or, or, you know, ease or wealth or abundance or something, a privileged position or something, a relatively good position that they will try to, I guess, hold back kind of the progress that's come, being come up with by technology, like whether it's like, you know, physical technology or, or electronic or social technology of some, some sort. So, and how those interact so like um we could achieve you know basically how i look at it because i do think like how do i how do i vibe the idea that under see i don't want to like give i don't want to give credit to capitalism or any one system or any one certain idea but under this kind of modern system which includes markets includes private property and and, and the thing we know is capitalism and includes the state it includes a, a lot of things that might have some contextual or limited benefit some you know might be net good net bad and other things and that's that's for us to discuss but un, under what's kind of inked its way out to the top um this world order that we have a lot of criticisms of and i think we are completely within our rights to have criticisms of i mean we have 
we're moving into a place where we are um, eliminating abject or extreme poverty and star starvation in, in, in yeah. most places. And um, so much, pro and the fact that like basic, like the, the kind of lifestyle consumer goods, which yes, there are criticisms of like rampant consumerism, but like consumer goods, like televisions, PCs, cell phones and everything, all this technology is, is becoming rapidly diffuse all over the world and, and every part of the world, every country, um, you know, transportation and cars and stuff. Yeah. And there's, and, and there's an issue, like, I don't know if we could have like a billion cars on roads, but like, um, so much progress is being made towards a world of abundance. That's, that's exponentially better than just not very long ago. Um, and what, not that we are going to measure progress by just GDP per capita, but, um, even as a proxy, that's like shooting up, but that's, you know, there's flaws in that measurement, but there's flaws in a lot of things. And I think we're, we're right to say that progress isn't bearing the fruits that it could for the most people because of certain privileged people and classes and, and, and you know, but like we are potentially really heading towards a post scarcity that like, if you can overcome the, the, forces that kind of want to protect their inbuilt privileges in the status quo um, and just allow open source and open stuff. And I'm not talking about necessarily commons per se. That I mean, to the extent that those things are commons, yes, but I'm not talking about necessarily a wide adoption of like common property, at least leading up to that. But if you can just take out the, um, the rent seekers and those that are basically especially rent seeking to preserve their you know positions um a privilege holding back the true implications of like our, our technical advancements i think we could we're moving doubtlessly towards some sort of post-scarcity yeah i a, think instead of a de facto sense right yeah there's a term there, there's a book from a few years ago that i really enjoy uh, i'm not saying it's perfect but i enjoyed it by jeremy rifkin and the book is called The uh, Zero Cost Society. And I think that's actually a much better term than post-scarcity okay, yeah, yeah. is zero cost society. Now, even in the I book, right. Yeah. Even in the book, Rifkin would argue that there's no such thing even as a zero cost society. It would be a near zero cost society if you wanted to be technical, but it just doesn't roll off the tongue as well. But I I have come to really, you know, this whole episode has really been about finding nice terms. Uh, <laughs> I think that's the theme. Um, but I've really come to love the term zero cost society instead of post-scarcity because right by dictionary definition, of course, that's not possible even with every, all the wild stuff about the universe we were talking about. Um, so yeah, I'm going to leave my points at that. Uh, and the other, the second point that I wanted just to make earlier and I want to make it quick uh, is that I'm not saying money isn't a part of existence, but I am saying that spirituality itself has nothing to do with adding more zeros after the one on your bank account. And sure. that's the key thing that I want to, I, I want to get across to people uh, in the concept that it's, that spirituality is anti-economics. Absolutely. Yeah, um, money is, yeah. Money to me is purely utilitarian. And the fact is, is that money, I guess, I don't know if, if I'm going to use terms perfectly correctly here, but money is allows us to um, manage more complex systems and more complex networks of like human human interactions ultimately uh supply chains and what we call an economy 
but it, it allows us to manage, I guess, complexity in a way that we really wouldn't under a more, you could say, primitive system without money. And I think it would be a much more primitive and much more bare-bones system without money. But it's purely utilitarian. As yeah, it's a tool. I mean, to me, yeah, it, it should be used, I mean, as a as a unit of account and the shadow exchanges. And, I mean, yes, um, global finance and, you know, things that are done with that, there is there are criticisms. But, I mean, I, I think that... You know the basic kind of information pro sharing and processing that we need to run just the basics of an economy that al allows for like just a modicum of the kind of abundance that we have requires you know that that tool or that technology that we call money yeah well said yeah great point but the love um, of all, the love of money and all that stuff that's that's really a whole and it doesn't it's not even referring necessarily to the technology of money Exactly. That's just the unit of account, you know? Yeah. It's more power, really. Um, Don't worship tools. There we go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great point. Well, uh, Brian, we should probably let you go. We've been going a bit uh, longer than we thought we were. So um, oh, this is awesome. I really appreciate it, guys. No, this has been fun. Uh, it's been great. We got, we're all over the place. And uh, do you have anything you want to plug? Yeah. That we yeah, haven't I'm, mentioned? Sure. Uh, that we haven't mentioned? Nothing no, whatever you want. But I'll plug, I got to plug the newsletter. Um, my wife, Mrs. Sovereign, she's just does amazing work on that. And of course, this whole conversation kind of spawned out of that. So just go to Sovereign, that's S-O-V-R-Y-N. So Sovereign.Substack.com to uh, to sign up for that. Yeah, right on. Um, well, again, man, thanks for coming on. It's always, uh, it's always fun having you on. And um, I think you're still reigning champ. I, th I think you still have the most episodes. I'm so, still the most episodes on the Agora podcast. Awesome. Yep, we'll keep that way. going. I know we've got a lot more we're going to get into, even probably just what we talked about here. So I can't wait. I know. I kind of feel like we just opened up a door on this episode that we could go in a million different directions. And I really enjoy that. Love but um, I always value the shit out of your, your opinions and your thoughts, man. You keep it interesting. And um, uh, we'll, we'll see you on here again next time. Same guys. Thanks. All right, peace. Uh, everybody be excellent to each other. Be excellent to each other. Yep. Ciao. Peace.